So Bodhidharma, let's get to him, this first ancestor of Zen in China. And so we're going to start today with a koan about Bodhidharma. Uh, Bodhidharma does not appear in many of the koans. Um, although we do have this very familiar question that does appear quite often in the koans, which is, why is it that Bodhidharma came from the West? This, um, this question we run into time and time again, monks would use this question as a sort of stand-in, uh, kind of a, a, a shorthand uh, for what is the ultimate truth of this, of this matter. So this became um, Zen vernacular. So when you see that question, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? That is what the monk's intention is to elicit some response that gets at this truth of Zen. Hmm? So aside from that, uh, we have Bodhidharma appearing just a few times. And this, this time is the very first case in the most important collection of cases that we have in our school, which is from the Hekidan Roku, or the Blue Cliff, Blue Rock Record. Uh, Blue Cliff, uh, because the compiler of this book um, lived, uh, I believe, at the foot of these incredibly tall um, cliffs that had this blue hue to them. So that is why it's called the Blue Cliff Record. So it has a hundred koans in it, this, this collection of cases. And it's uh, the second major collection of koans in our uh, tradition, in most traditions of koan work that uh, we deal with. Um, so this is the very first one. And so I'll read the case and then comment on it. So this is called Bodhidharma's clear and void, sometimes called vast and void. <coughs> so it starts like this. Emperor Wu asked the great master Bodhidharma, what is the highest meaning of the holy reality? Bodhidharma replied, vast and void, no holiness. The emperor said, well, who are you in front of me? Bodhidharma said, I don't know. The emperor did not match him. Finally, Bodhidharma crossed the Yangtze River and came to the kingdom of Gi. Later, the emperor asked Shiko for his view. Shiko said, does your majesty know who that man is? The emperor said, I don't know. Shiko said, he is the Mahasattva Avogateshvara, transmitting the seal of the Buddha's mind. The emperor regretted and wanted to send an emissary to invite Bodhidharma back. Shiko said, your majesty, do not intend to send an emissary to fetch him back. 
even if all the people in the land were to go after him, he would not return. Uh, so by the way, this Mahasattva Avalokiteshvara, this is Kuan Yin, uh, Bodhisattva of Compassion, Kanon, right? all the same, same energy, this compassionate energy. <coughs> so, um, Traditionally, on October 5th, which was last Thursday, um, in Japan anyway, and other now in America, Bodhidharma Day is uh, commemorated. Bodhidharma was, um, is this semi-legendary, semi-historic figure. Um, he was born and raised in India. He, we're told that he was the son of a king and became a student as an adult of Prajnatara. Uh, and recent scholarship has revealed that most likely Prajnatara was a woman teacher, which is so important for us to remember the, and, and Sheldon and I are compiling, mostly Sheldon uh, and Pooja helped compiling our new chant book. And we intend to include a um, ancestral line of women teachers, finally. Um, there are many American teachers that have worked over the years to, to right that wrong. So Prajnatara, at the end of her life, asked Bodhidharma to go to China, to spread the Dharma. And as I think about this, I can imagine how strange it would have been for this figure to show up in China at the time. Um, one of the nicknames that Bodhidharma is given is this affectionately, um, affectionately titled um, the Red Bearded Barbarian. Uh, he's often portrayed with blue eyes and red hair, probably because he was of Persian descent. So for this person to show up in China uh, would have been quite the sight. Uh, this bushy beard, if you want to see, you can look up at Hawkwinds, at the altar Hawkwinds, that picture on uh, above the incense box there, and then our various figures up there, this hairy barbarian. And also to say that to make the journey to from India to China at that time, it was a three-year journey. It's not like the transatlantic flight that I just took, or trans-Pacific flight that I took. So to travel for three years to China. So he was the, considered the first ancestor of Zen in China, meaning um, uh, his coming to China most likely in the mid 500s, that's what the time frame we're talking about, was this, this transition, it marked this transition in Buddhism in China. Buddhism had been there for hundreds of years beforehand, but we're told that it was mostly a tradition based in scholarly works, translation of Buddhist texts, ritual, um, chanting, um, devotionary practice. And so the arrival of Bodhidharma on the scene 
really is the beginning of, of real practice for the first time, this <clears throat> practice of looking inward. Of course, demarcated by these famous four lines um, that he, that's attributed to Bodhidharma. He, he apparently said that Zen is a special transmission outside of the scriptures, not relying on words or letters, directly pointing to the mind and seeing into one's true nature and realizing Buddhahood. As I was thinking about these lines, uh, it would be akin to um, a a some sort of change in Christianity here that would suddenly say, uh, as Jesus did, heaven is right here. Can, but not only for somebody to say that, but then for then the whole tradition to shift into a tradition that was here rather than in heaven somewhere else in another life afterlife. Can you imagine what a cultural shift that would be if that were to happen? No way. Hmm. So, so this other figure in this case is Emperor Wu, Emperor Wu of Liang. And he was born in 502. Um, he was a very devout Buddhist practitioner, modeled himself after the great Indian Emperor Ashoka, uh, who in his very early years was very violent, uh, but then later turned to Buddhism. And um, much of what we know about the early sites of uh, the historic sites of the Buddha's life were because of the Emperor Ashoka. He put different uh, monuments up to mark the Buddha's travels. So this, this uh, Emperor Wu spent much of his time building monasteries, um, ordaining monks, uh, translating sutras, um, raising money for Buddhism. In fact, one of the ways he did this was himself, he would spend time in monasteries. He was ordained himself multiple times. I don't know exactly how that works, but somehow it worked. And we're told that when his, um, his, his, uh, the officials at the court needed his help back at the palace, they would come calling to find him at the monasteries and um, he would demand that they give money to the monasteries for him to come back. In essence, holding himself ransom. Um, so he clearly had um, a creative streak to him. <laughs> and so in the longer version of this encounter between Bodhidharma and this Emperor Wu, the emperor begins actually by explaining all of these deeds that he has done for Buddhism. And then asks, what merit have I earned from all of this stuff that I've done? 
you know, at that time, and still in many forms of Buddhism today, merit is a central concept. And it has a lot of positive aspects to it. I at some point want to do a talk on that separately. But um, it often it is misunderstood. And it becomes about a way of paving um, one's way for a favorable rebirth, so that then one will be reborn into conditions in a future lifetime that one can then really practice. So all of one's efforts goes into doing good deeds, right? It was more or less at the time a game of spiritual shoots and ladders. Um, I've I, I mentioned this before. In fact, that game itself originated in ancient India. Shoots, did you know that? Shoots and ladders. It was called snakes and ladders. Um, and, and it was sort of a morality lesson of a game, you know, that the person can attain. Um, nirvana liberation what was called mo, 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 moksha uh, through doing good and um, when one does evil one is reborn in a lower life form and in the game there are always more snakes than there are ladders which is a good reminder that it's always easier to take the path of least resistance right to not do good. So this sort of mentality, this, this, this um, um, idea of making it up the ladder is pretty ingrained, I would say, in all of us. And tends to be the way we approach our lives. Of course, this can be brought and often is brought right into our meditation practice here in the Zendo. All right, it's difficult to sit without any expectation of gain. And for most practitioners, for some for many years, that's the sort of back, background programming that continually runs. It's sort of like a kind of a calculator app, you know, that is um, in the background running, sometimes it comes right to the foreground. It's like one of those annoying pop-ups that comes onto your computer as you're trying to do something. But, but even when it's not in the foreground, very subtly it's operating in the background. This calculator app, tallying, busy tallying our progress, our lack of progress. Where am I? Which, of course, is based on our expectations, our time frames, which are almost always too short, by the way, unrealistically short, based on our fantasies about what practice will do for us or what it can't do for us, about how we measure up, and worries about not measuring up. And the, the important thing I think to, to share is that what I've noticed over the years is that unless we shut down that app, like delete it from our computers, 
then it will be difficult to really continue with practice. Because it's within this stage of practice that we're dominated by strategizing. You see, you know, uh, sometimes that's an internal strategizing. Sometimes it's an external strategizing, meaning sometimes uh, people hop from teacher to teacher, from Zen center to Vipassana group, to from this kind of practice to that kind of practice. You know, really hoping to land uh, in the right place on the board. Um, people sometimes start a koan and then, and then maybe after a few months or a year, they come in the doksan saying that, you know, they've gone back to the breath um, or just sitting. Or sometimes it's just a kind of complacency that sets in, a kind of giving up on one's practice. But the, all of these are forms of suffering, of dukkha. That is all dukkha, this jumping around, this clinging, craving. And so many people, many, many people drop out of practice because they get trapped, seduced by this, and ultimately overwhelmed by this stage of practice. And then really it's always a shame when that happens. And so the Emperor Wu, who is deeply devout, hears about this renowned Buddhist teacher, this monk from India, and thinks, well, I've got to meet this guy. You know, rife with expectations, of course. And then begins the dialogue. You know, what, how much merit, where am I? How much merit have I earned? for doing all this. In other words, how far am I up that spiritual ladder? And Bodhidharma's answer, no merit. This is what I like to think of as the first utterance of Zen in China. No merit. And in essence, this is something that we all need to hear the mind that wants to progress, the mind that wants to know where it stands, always needing to know how we're doing. It's like, you know, it's like a kid. I, you know, I hear myself saying this to my parents as we're driving through Arizona, you know, which, or other states out there in New Mexico. If you've ever driven through there, it can be hundreds of miles of just nothing, desert, right? And what do you say? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much longer? And in essence, this is, this is why this Buddhist teaching is so radical. Because it is ingrained so hard in all of us that it is difficult to trust that there's actually another way at all to not focus on progress. And you can fill in here. It's not just about practice. It's all about where we stand in our jobs, in our life, with our partners, with not having a part, you know, just the myriad ways. You know, when the Buddha began teaching, he started with suffering, 
what he called dukkha. And it's important to keep in mind that dukkha, although it's translated as suffering, isn't always such a heavy thing. It can be very subtle, slight, you know, like these just subtle feelings of unhappiness or stress or disappointment or just nagging physical sensations. Or just simply of change itself, you know. The Buddha said that we suffer simply because of impermanence. Um, I'm reminded of Ajacha, the renowned um, Theravadan teacher. He was the teacher of uh, people like Jack Kornfield, um, um, Sharon Salzberg. Uh, yeah, yeah, others up in up in Barrie, Massachusetts at the Insight Meditation Center. He was a Theravadan teacher, and he was very fond of the teaching of the broken glass. He would often begin his lectures by holding up a cup, and there was water in it, and he would say that this cup is already broken. Knowing that, I can enjoy it fully. Of course, it wasn't broken yet. But this was his way of coming into um, what you might call right relationship with impermanence. In other words, it is I see impermanence. I, I therefore life is precious. You know, but to 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 see that, to experience that, it, we have to stop. We have to stop the hamster wheel once in a while. So the suffering is, can be very subtle. Perhaps the most subtle form of it, sometimes obvious, is the self-concept itself. This very convincing solidity that we feel, right? This is me. This is just the way I am. This is the way I've always been. This is the way I will always be. And of course, that solidity that arises as the brain does this very beautiful job of stitching together experience and process as it takes in all of the information through the senses, and then it begins to make associations, to weave stories, to create identities, to make solid. I, I remember also as a kid, at uh, some point, um, laying down, I forget where I was, it might have been at the beach, but I remember looking up and seeing this black, solid, mass, like this dark cloud that was moving very quickly through the sky and finally could make out that what it was was a, a, um, a enormous flock of starlings that were just, you know, thousands of birds moving at the same time, just weaving 
And so this very convincing wave of self that can sometimes feel very dark and solid, right, as it moves, and yet it's not one thing. So together, you know, this, these, the, the Buddha called all of these elements, he, he summarized them as the three marks of existence, suffering, impermanence, and no self, no solid self. Suffering, impermanence, and no self. So when we look at Bodhidharma's interaction with the emperor, we can see this very beautiful kind of mapping of the three marks of existence right on to this dialogue. How? Well, let's start with this first question of the emperor, which is about merit, right? What merit have I earned? In other, in, in other words, he is trying to get off of the wheel of samsara. This, he's trying to get out of suffering. This, as the Chinese call it, they call it the world of dust. <coughs> right? So how do I escape suffering? And Bodhidharma says, no merit. Really saying to the emperor that there is no escape. No escape. I think of Pema Chodron's book. Um, you know, she has so many of these beautiful little books, and they, you, they, all you need is their title, and then you're done. I don't know how she does it, but it's, but this one I'm thinking of is the wisdom of no escape. There you go. If you're ever wondering what to do, there you go. No escape. Yeah. How do I escape? By not escaping. Being here, staying here. Moment after moment, staying here. Right? As I always say in you know, introductory workshops, it's like a mouse. Our minds are like little mice and they run off, they scurry off. So we gently pick them up and we bring them back here and then they scurry off again. And we pick them up and we bring them right here. So this emperor asked Bodhidharma then, what is the highest meaning of the holy reality? In other words, if there's no merit, what is the what what then can I rely on? What is the holy teaching? In the Buddhist time, there was a great deal of development around the world, really. Um, in, in philosophy and in religious thought. Some scholars call this um, period in time the Axial Age. Um, it was a time when there was the Greek philosophers, you know, Homer was also, you know, coming in, Confucius and Lao Tzu in China. There was the rise of um, Zoroastrianism in what is now Iran the Upanishads in India, others as well, and of course, Buddhism. But what's so interesting about 
to me anyway to, uh, about the Buddha was that he was wasn't interested in philosophy and religion. He was interested in investigating the causes of human suffering. The, all of the cultural baggage, the cultural milieu, so to speak, at the time was um, trying to place oneself in in the hierarchy. You know the the um, the caste system, you know, and the Buddha was all about freeing from that caste system. And this question of suffering, of why we struggle, it's not a religious, it's not a philosophical question. It's a question of the heart, you know? It's a question that arises out of that wish to be released from struggle, which is, I think, why we're all here on some level. And so throughout history, what is common to all Buddhist practitioners is that need to resolve that question. How do I find liberation? And so the emperor's question is, what is the highest holy truth? Bodhidharma says, vast and void, nothing holy. In Zen, this is the gospel. You know, this is the good news. Isn't that what God, I was trying to, isn't, isn't that what gospel means? Doesn't gospel mean good news? Yeah. Okay, okay, thank you. Um, yeah. No. So this is the good news. Nothing holy. Vast and void. This is the vastness where we find our freedom. There's nothing that's fixed. There's nothing that's fixed, not me, not you, not our situation. There's nothing independent. Everything is what the Buddha called co-arising, co-conditioned. There is no, nothing solid. And so we can talk, this is sometimes called emptiness in Buddhism. But what we're talking about when we use the word emptiness is actually something from my experience uh, is more akin to pure potential, potentiality. We're all resting in a state of pure potential. All, always. The potential that is bringing forth everything as it is. Everything's being born from this, so to speak. The, th the thing about be saying being born is then, of course, then we have two things, right? We have mm -hmm. something that is born and something that gives birth. And yet somehow that's not quite it. Somehow, even though it just doesn't make sense, what is born and what is giving birth are the exact same thing. Don't ask me how that works. It just does. It's not something we 
need to remember or write down. It's not a, again, it's not a philosophical truth. It's something that has to be experienced, both gradually, as we examine our minds through daily zazen, we see it. If we look closely enough, we experience this no fixedness. And at times it can be experienced very suddenly, very definitively. And this, this nothing holy, not vast and void, nothing holy, is one of the reasons you might say that Zen is not a creedal religion. There is no creed. There's nothing to believe in. That's why it's even hard to say it's a religion at all. You know, again, a reminder that the Buddha's words cannot even be relied on. When the Buddha was dying, he said, all component things in this world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Zen Master Dogen said that impermanence itself is Buddha nature. If you want to understand Buddha nature, you should intimately observe cause and effect over time. When the time is ripe, Buddha nature manifests. So as we practice over a long time, it becomes palpable that impermanence itself is not something to overcome, but something to embrace, something to live. It's the path itself. So Emperor Wu says, this is like strike two, right? <laughs> it's like strike one. What merit have I gotten? Nothing. Strike two, you know. <clears throat> Strike two is what is the highest teaching, vast and void, and here we go. So he keeps going. Oh, I thought you were a holy person, he asks. I thought you were a holy person. So who are you? And Bodhidharma's response is, I don't know. He is speaking directly from that place of not knowing, of freedom from the trap of knowing. There is no one who knows. There is no person that can know. A student once asked the Buddha, who is it that is craving? Who is it that is craving? And the Buddha's response was quite interesting. He said, it's not a fit question. He said, I'm not saying someone craves when I speak about craving and release. I'm not saying someone craves. But then he says, if you were to ask me by what is craving conditioned? He said, that is a fit question. And to that fit question, the fit answer is conditioned by feeling. So the Buddha doesn't answer, who is it that craves? Because to do so would be to reinforce that delusion that there is someone. The Buddha understood that even when we use words like who, me, I, 
they have a power to them that reinforces that sense of separate self. I can't do this. I need that. You are different than me. When we see for ourselves there's no fixed person, it's quite shocking, actually. But it's also a relief. It's a release. And that's why insight is important in Zen into this. So Bodhidharma, his response, I don't know. Again, how much time do we spend consciously sort of subconsciously, habitually trying to know, trying to know um, the answer, where we stand, who we are. So Bodhidharma, three strikes, you're out. Hmm? He leaves. So we're told he leaves, he crosses the Yangtze River. By the way, on a single blade of grass. <laughs> on a single blade of grass and settles into a cave at Shaolin and begins a period of nine years of sitting, silently sitting, called wall gazing. That is what Zazen is. It is wall gazing. It is facing the wall. Of course, we sit here in the Zeno facing inward. That's more for practical reasons, but really it's more about facing ourselves, investigating the self. And because we're confused about the self, we're very confused. But as we practice and return over and over again, we, became, we become clearer we get some clarity into this nature. We see for ourselves what it is and what it's not. And we, we, we get experiences and, and have uh, sort of uh, glimpses into what the affirming faith and mind chant says, that these are nothing but flowers of air. <clears throat> flowers of air. Shadows. And when we have that kind of experience or gain that kind of footing, so to speak, then there becomes no alternative other than to return to what is here because other, everything else becomes unsatisfactory to go to the mind, to go to thoughts about past and present, past and future, to worry so much. It becomes, um, just unsatisfactory. There's just no satisfaction in it anymore. We've exhausted it. Why am I spending this much time worrying? There's nothing to worry about. The Buddha said in the Diamond Sutra, he said, thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And so the, the emperor misses what Bodhidharma was teaching. 
So he leaves. And his attendant, Shiku, uh, tries to tell him what he missed. He says, your reverence, don't you know who that was? That was the Bodhisattva of compassion. And of course, the emperor clings. Let's get him back. Come on. Bring him back. You know, in thinking about this line, what struck me this morning was how compassion shows up so much in our life all the time. But it doesn't show up the way we're expecting it to. You know, compassion isn't, doesn't, always, isn't always rosy, but it is always showing up. But when we're caught in our minds, in ourself, we will miss it. We won't see it. We can't take advantage of it. Right. And so the attendant says, even if you sent everybody in China after Bodhidharma, he couldn't come back. And so this is one of the koan points in Doksan that we investigate together, which is why is it that he can't come back? That would be a question. To answer that question, we have to see into that formless nature that Bodhidharma is trying to convey to the emperor. That there's nothing but this present moment. There's nothing, there's nothing that can leave. There's nothing that can come or go. There never has been any coming or going. So, so this Bodhidharma, let's wrap it up. This Bodhidharma is showing us the way to face the wall, face the wall. That would be most known for this teaching of practicing uh, Zazen for nine years in a cave which is facing our own minds. That's what we are here to do. Hmm.